Before I, uh, before I commence, I, I just want to make a comment. Um, if you've never preached before, if you've never had the opportunity of uh, studying the word in private and uh, preparing to share with others, which most haven't, and I understand that, there are some insights to be had in such a task. And one of those insights are the great joy that's associated with discovering truth in the word, which we do in private, uh, and then being able to preach that to your people. And there's, there's an excitement attached to that. But on the flip side of it, there's also a great deal of burden and hardship associated with the study, sometimes. Sometimes it is just such a wonderful joy, and at other times it is an incredibly difficult task, both in the preparation and the preaching of the word. And uh, in the last two weeks, I've experienced both emotions. Last week was an incredibly difficult time in the study, and then a wonderful time to preach it last Sunday, and we've commenced a new study, which will continue, uh, not today, but in, in due course. And then last, this last week has been an incredibly difficult time in studying, and uh, I've not been out of focus, my attention's been everywhere, I've been diverted left, right and centre, and uh, I've really not been looking forward to it, uh, which happens from time to time. And I've been praying and asking the Lord all morning, Lord, I need help this morning because I just feel as though uh, I'm just not where I need to be, there's something not quite right. And so I'm asking you this morning if you would, even in this moment, pray from me with what is being shared. Uh, these are wonderful truths. I've got no question about what we're about to look at. But I have a question about myself. And sometimes as a preacher, you, uh, you realize there's something there, but you don't know what it is. And so I'm hoping that uh, I've dealt with what I needed to uh, this morning and uh, things that the Lord has revealed to me. But I am uh, entering this this morning with some sense of trepidation. Uh, and perhaps that's what the Lord wants. Maybe that'll make me even more dependent upon him this morning and a blessing to you. But here's what I have found, and I'm sure you know this to be true, that the Bible is a book of inexhaustible riches. Inexhaustible riches. Choose any subject you like, any subject in the Bible, any verse, any theme, and you will not be able to plummet its depths. I promise. It has been my privilege now for nearly... 17 years to have preached the word of God and I have enjoyed and endured both of those aspects when it comes to the study and the preaching both an enjoyment and an enduring in it but I have found this to be true you cannot plummet the depths of scripture just when you think you've got all there is to know about a particular subject you find a cross reference or you find a word form or a definition you never before saw and it changes your mind again. And such was the case as I commenced my preparation for this communion message. As I said, I had some real difficulty knowing where God wanted me to go and I was reading and reading and looking at different passages and wondering, what is it, Lord, that you would have me to share with my people on Sunday? And my study took me to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. Don't turn there yet. Let me read it to you. This is what it says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by whose wounds you have been healed. Precious, glorious text of scripture, one I have preached on many times. And as I read through that, something in that verse caught my attention. And it's not something that ordinarily does. 
It could have been who bore our sins. That's caught my attention many times. In his body, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. All oh, There's some great nouns and verbs in there that could just grab your attention. But on this occasion, it was the use of the word tree. Tree. And it caught my attention. And I wasn't too sure why. And then I thought about geographical locations, I thought about aspects of creation that all through the scripture point to a greater truth. For example, I'm not going to preach this, but one day I might, the mountains of the Bible, a subject you've probably never studied. But let me tell you, when you go through the Bible and you read about Mount Moriah, the place where Abraham and Isaac are there and a ram is caught in the thicket, Mount Moriah, there's a mountain. You go to the Mount of Transfiguration and there Jesus is transformed before his disciples. You go to Mount Calvary, you see the Lord Jesus on the cross. And then you go to the future Mount Zion and you say, wow, this is an amazing study, just the mountains of the Bible. But for now, we're looking at trees. You say, are you a greenie? No, I'm not. Okay, but we're looking at trees. And we all know, we've all heard it said, I've preached it before, that the tree is a symbol of the cross. It's a synonym of the cross. We often say the Lord Jesus was crucified on a tree or on the cross. They're interchangeable terms. But what I have found, which has been very interesting in my study in the last couple of days, has been that there are some very interesting events and behaviours and attitudes associated with trees in the Bible. Now you might think this is really bizarre. What a strange subject to look at. And I'll tell you in advance, I don't have the time this morning to tell you about all the trees in the Bible, but there is a study that you need to do on the trees in the Bible. So this morning I've got some, I think, some powerful truths to share with you, which I've simply entitled a theology of trees. A theology of trees. So let's ask the Lord to help as we go into this together. Father, thank you for uh, this particular study. It's been hard. It's been difficult. I've been unsure where you'd have me to go. I pray you'd give direction in these moments now as we look to this unusual subject that I think has a great weight of truth and glory to it. And so help me, I pray, to communicate the truths that I have learned in private uh, to these, my people, the ones who you've called me to lead and shepherd. And I pray it would be both helpful and fruitful in all that we do in Jesus' name. Amen. The first tree that we're going to look at, I have called the tree of rebellion. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2, very familiar portion of scripture. The tree of rebellion. We have a number of places we're going to turn this morning, so if you can't keep up, that's fine, get a copy of the notes. But in Genesis chapter 2, that should be easy enough to find, beginning in verse number 1. We're going to read the first 17 verses. Genesis 2 verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust. 
from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first, uh, the name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah when, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil shall, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then we go to Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Here we have the account as we know it of creation and the fall of Adam and Eve sin in the Garden of Eden. Not an unfamiliar passage of scripture, one that we have probably read many, many times, certainly one we teach our children and families. Instead of obeying the command of God and remaining in the state of innocence, the first human sinned and brought the curse upon every aspect of creation. It's thousands of years later that the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. In Romans 5.12, he also writes that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth from that day until now, Paul writes in Romans 8.22. Now, we know for a fact that this tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees existed there, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as seen here. But I think we can associate this tree as the tree of rebellion, not because the tree did wrong, but because Adam and Eve disobeyed God and in rebellion took of its fruit and ate it to their own detriment and the detriment of every one of their descendants. And it's very important for us this morning, as we come to the table, as we come to a time of worship around, that we remember from whence we came, that we remember what our problem was and is if we're still in our sin. This is the tree of rebellion. And were it us today, were we confronted with that same situation that Adam and Eve were, we too would eat of its fruit. 
Lest we become too judgmental of Adam and Eve and say, why did they do that? They plummeted the whole of mankind into sin. Why, why, why? We are no different to them. We are made of the same stuff. And we too would have lost our innocence on that occasion. And so we need to understand that we have here before us the tree of rebellion. It was Adam and Eve's fault that the whole of mankind became sinful. The whole of creation became sinful. But bear it in mind this morning, it is our own decision today to remain under its curse. The curse came into the world by them, but the curse remains upon us because of our own decision. So if you here this morning know not the truth about the Lord Jesus and do not know what he has done for you, you remain under the curse of that initial sin which results in judgment. And for those of us who are saved, we are mindful of the curse from which we have been set free this morning. This is the tree of rebellion. And before we ever come to the tree upon which Jesus Christ hung, we must first understand the tree of rebellion. Salvation and entrance into the family of God comes by means of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's not stay at the tree of rebellion. Let's go secondly to the tree of religion. The tree of religion. We're in Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse number 7 with me immediately following what we've already read. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. If you don't look at this carefully, you'll miss a very important truth here. The second tree mentioned in the Bible is the fig tree. And this fig tree is associated with religion. It's the first species of tree mentioned by name too. We have here the leaves of a fig tree. It's interesting to note that when we look here, we see that the immediate response of two who have fallen from their innocence is to try to find a way to cover their guilt. The immediate response is that they would enter into a religious relationship. By that I mean that when their eyes had been opened to their nakedness, to their guilt and to their shame, they quickly endeavoured to remove that guilt and shame by enlisting a covering from the large leaves of the fig tree. They, on their own attempt, sought to bring about this reconciliation from their guilt and their shame. It was an act of religion. This is the first act of religion in the Bible and it involves a tree and it involves the leaves of the fig tree. Now the Bible doesn't tell us that this was actually an act of religion but that's exactly what it was. See, religion in every sense, in every sense both today and in the past, has always been about me finding a way outside of God to take care of my sin, my guilt and my shame. And that's exactly what they did here. Adam and Eve worked together to sew for themselves a loincloth or covering over the shame and nakedness of their bodies, which prior to this was not even in the question because they lived in a state of innocence. 
And let me say to us today, this is precisely what religion does for us today. And I would even submit to us that there may be those here today who are operating with religiosity. You are seeking to please either yourself or God or somebody else by means of what you can do, by means of your own hands and accomplishment. And this is exactly what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 1. I'd like you to turn there with me, please. Romans chapter 1 and part thereof is really what happens when we try to do things our way. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Perhaps I would suggest and submit to you one of the scariest passages in the entire Bible. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, we read this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Is that not religion right there? Futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then verse 24, this sad, sad verse. Therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. What? What a terrible, terrible state mankind is in now because what we did was seek religion. We sought to do it on our own. And we see here this second point of the tree of religion. The fig tree is an emblem. It's a picture, in my opinion, of exactly this. We're trying to do things by ourselves. We're trying to make way for, uh, get rid of our own guilt and our own shame by means of our own attempts to do so. And the Bible makes it clear that cannot be done. And so for those perhaps here who are engaged in religion, not in relationship with Christ, religion, trying to do it yourself, we find that the end result is devastating. 
Religion can save nobody. Nobody. Religion is not the answer. In Romans chapter 3, just a page over, we read about what really the heart of man is like in verse 10 through to verse 18. Follow along if you would. Romans 3 verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the state of sin. This is the state of depravity. This is what we are like outside of God. And so we see the tree of religion. But I want you to see, thirdly, another tree. And I've called this the tree of inquisition. The tree of inquisition. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And here begins the joy in our story of the theology of trees. It began in a wonderful way, but man fell by choosing to partake of that first tree of rebellion. And then they tried to take care of it by the tree of religion. But now we meet a man in the tree of inquisition. Follow along as I read verse 1 through to verse 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place where he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded any one of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What a precious account this is. What an amazing situation. The crowd is thronging around Jesus. And I love the fact that God loves little people. So if you're a short and stature catcher, you can rejoice. God loves little people. And here is a little man, a rich little man and an outcast in society, hated by the Jews, hated by everyone. And his desire is, I want to see this man, Jesus. Now, why, we don't fully know. Perhaps he'd heard of his healings. Perhaps he'd heard that he was a friend of sinners and he knew himself to be a sinner. Perhaps he wondered, I wonder who this Jesus really is. And so when Jesus comes to town, he can't see him for his stature. So up the sycamore tree he goes and there he looks out. And amazingly, could you imagine being this man... With all the baggage of sin in your life, knowing that you are hated, knowing that you are rich, knowing that you're an outcast, and Jesus stops at your tree. And he doesn't just say, I'm coming to your house. He says, Zacchaeus. By name, he calls the sinner out. The Lord Jesus, we have no account of him ever meeting Zacchaeus before, and this is the only place in the scripture we read of him. What an amazing account this is. 
And we find here the tree of inquisition in that this man was curious. This man was a seeker. And what I love about this is that when the seeker climbs the tree, so to speak, Jesus meets him right there. What a precious thought. If you will seek him, he will be found of you. And the Bible is crystal clear about this truth. Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all your heart. It is God's disposition, yea, his predisposition to be found by sinners who seek him. What a precious truth. In Isaiah 55, verses 6 to 7 Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. Zacchaeus is a sinful man. And even these people on that day, they begin to be bitter. And they say in verse 7, they grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Can I say to you right there is the greatest truth in all of space and time. Jesus is prepared to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. That is a tremendous theology right there. A glorious truth that Jesus is prepared to go and dwell with a man who's a sinner and not leave him the same ever again. An incredible, incredible truth. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Was it not the Lord Jesus who said in Matthew 11.28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's not talking about physical sleep, spiritual rest. I will give you a soul that is so beat up by the billows of life, I will give your soul rest in myself. And so I love the tree of inquisition. That was a wonderful find for me, that if you will seek him, you will be found of him. But then fourthly, and you knew we were heading here, you had to know we were heading here, this is the tree of redemption. The tree of redemption. And I'd like you to turn to a number of passages here. First of all, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, a passage I mentioned at the start that was the catalyst for this study. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22. And you can see how perhaps uh, I followed this line of thinking through the pages of Scripture from here. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 22. Peter says, He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Then turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. In my study, I read every single tree in the Bible. Every single tree. Read about every single time that word occurs. And it was a really interesting study. And so here's another time in Galatians chapter 4, speaking of this tree of redemption. 
Galatians 4 and verse number 11. Excuse me, Galatians 3. Apologies. Galatians 3. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Turn with me one more place to the book of Acts and chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Here we find the apostles preaching and teaching, seeking to help people understand the mystery of the gospel. And in Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse number 30, we read this. Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Their message was the message that Jesus was crucified on a tree. This is the climactic moment in all of history. This is the great moment, the moment that we gather around to celebrate that happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ died on a tree. He took our place as our redeemer, the substitute. This was the darkest day and yet the most glorious day. And when we speak of redemption, what I mean by this tree of redemption is the fact that in his death, he purchased us. He made us alive. He made us his own. He reconciled us and freed us from the penalty of sin. Now, lest we get too concerned here and think wrongly, we're not worshipping the tree. And we're not worshipping the tree. We're not worshipping the cross. We're not worshipping the nails or the spear. We worship the risen Christ. We need to get that right. Okay? And I know that some of you may have come from backgrounds where back in the 70s and 80s people stopped wearing crosses because the cross became a symbol, became greater than just a symbol. It actually became a form of idolatry back then. And there's historic evidence to say that Christians began worshipping crosses instead of Christ. That's not what we're talking about here. We're simply using this as an emblem, a symbol, as we consider this tree. Consider this. Jesus was forced to wear a purple robe made by the purple fish in the Mediterranean Sea, which he produced. Consider this, Jesus was crucified on a tree that he had created. Jesus was pinned to the cross by nails that had been forged in the fires of his earth. Jesus was crucified by men whose life and breath were sustained by him. Every breath, every inhale and exhale of the Roman soldier was given to them by the man they were crucifying. Jesus wore a thorny crown which existed because of the garden in Genesis chapter 3. 
the thorns, the result of sin. The tree of redemption. So I want to ask at this point, we have one other after this, but I want to ask at this point because it's critical for us to remember if we're a Christian or be uh, illuminated to this truth for the first time, what was the point of Christ's death on the cross? Now most of you at this point are going to say, I know what the point is. But let's be reminded for just a moment. Very quickly, let me give you eight things. Eight reasons why Jesus died on the cross. Number one, to give eternal life. To all who would believe on him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Christ died to provide eternal life. Number one. Number two. Why did Christ die on the cross? To remove from us the stain and guilt of sin. In theology, we call this the expiation of sin. The expiation. To remove from us the stain and guilt of sin. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, they tried to do that by sewing fig leaves together. Jesus said, that's never going to do. I'll take care of this. And it was John who in John chapter 1 and verse 29, the Bible says, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, secondly, died on the cross to remove the guilt and stain of sin. And this morning, if you are saved, think of that. The stain and the guilt of sin is gone forever and ever and ever because of Christ's death on the cross. He came not that all of you would, but that you individually would no longer have the stain and guilt of sin. That's amazing. And then thirdly, what was the point of Christ's death on the cross? It was to bring us to God. In other words, we call that reconciliation. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We tried to get to God on our own. History records that. The Tower of Babel was man's attempts to reach God. The fig leaves were man's attempts to religiosity and freedom from sin and guilt. We couldn't do it. We've tried ever since. And Jesus says, I come to die for this reason that I might bring you to God because I'm the only one worthy to do so. That's why it must be Christ and Christ alone. Nobody else can bring us to God. Fourthly, why did Jesus die on the cross? To take away our condemnation. Romans 8 verse 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian here this morning, it doesn't matter what someone else thinks of you. It doesn't matter what the world says of you. There is now no condemnation. Your sin has been taken care of. You can never be under sin again because you are in Christ. That's what he did. He freed you from sin and the condemnation attached to it. The judgment of God is no longer upon you if you are in Christ. Oh, but friend, if you are not. If you are not in Christ, if you know not the Lord Jesus, then you remain under the full weight of sin and guilt and will give an account for it one day and the penalty of such. Number five, what was the point of Christ's death on the cross? To demonstrate God's love for us. 
Romans 5.8, but God commendeth or demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You say, why did he come? He came and died to show you what love is. The world promises love. In every corner they promise love. True love is found in one place. And that is in God's love for sinners in sending his son to die for us. Number six, what was the point of Christ's death on the cross? To absorb the wrath of God. We call that propitiation. To absorb the wrath of God. 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I need us to understand this this morning before we move on. As a sinner, one who is outside of Jesus Christ, who has never accepted the Lord Jesus' sacrifice, you are currently at this moment under the full weight of the wrath of God for a sin. It's not that God hates you, it is that God is just and righteous and therefore your sin has created a separation between you and your God and that separation cannot be bridged, that gulf cannot be fixed except in that Jesus died for your sin and by trusting in that work, in trusting in his blood and what he has accomplished for you, there is the bridge to you from you to God and the whole form of God God's wrath is absorbed in Christ. There's only two ways it can happen. You pay for your sin or Jesus pays for your sin. That's the only way. And so the answer for you this morning, if you are outside of Christ, is to trust in what Jesus has done for you so that your sin might be taken care of. He absorbed the full weight of God's wrath for you. Amazing truth. Number seven, to purchase us. As his possession. Why did Jesus die on the cross? To purchase us as his possession. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, we are told that we are not redeemed with corruptible things. Like gold and silver, precious stones and so forth. But with the blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish and spot. He purchased your freedom and your freedom now is to live for him. Previously you were owned, you were a slave of sin, now you are his, completely and utterly righteous positionally before him because he has redeemed you. And then lastly, in this matter, and there are so many more, but number eight, why did Jesus die? He died to defeat the powers of darkness that held us captive. You were captive by the powers of darkness. Colossians 2, 13 to 15 says, you were dead in your trespasses. God made you alive together with him, cancelling the record of debt that stood against you with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Boy, the tree of redemption has so much to it. And you know full well there's more to it than that. But in moving to my last point and in closing before we partake of communion, I don't want to leave it just there. There is one other tree, one other tree for our consideration, and that is the tree of life, the tree of life. I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, if you would, please, as we draw to a close. Revelation chapter 2. 
We were here recently studying the churches in the book of Revelation. And Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, having spoken to the church at Ephesus, this is what the Lord Jesus promises to them and all who are his. Revelation 2, 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's go to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22. And we've got limited time, but I'm going to read this because it is just too full and I can't not. Revelation 22, beginning in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the, city of the, uh, through the, middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no lamp, no light of lamp, rather, or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and prophets and with those uh, brothers, the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. The tree of life is a mysterious truth. I think all of us at some point or another have wondered what this really means, how this operates and, and so forth. And I don't think we'll fully understand it until we're with the Lord. But here's a quick summary of what we learn in the Bible about the tree of life. The tree of life is a life-giving tree created to enhance and perpetually sustain the physical life of humanity. Okay? Its point was to give ongoing life. 
The tree of life was planted in the Garden of Eden by God for man. Genesis 2.9 Had God not protected the way to the tree of life, Adam and Eve would have lived forever in their fallen condition. It was the grace of God that kicked them out of the garden. That's the grace and mercy of God on display in Genesis 3.22. What happened to the tree of life, we do not know between then and when we get to Revelation 22. Whether God upped and planted it elsewhere or whatever, we do not know. The tree is now present in heaven and the fruit of which will be eaten by those who are conquerors, according to Revelation 2 and verse 7. I hope you like eating fruit because that's what you're going to be doing for eternity. A careful examination of Revelation 22 tells us, and it's interesting, that the tree of life in heaven is not a single tree. It's not a single tree, but a kind of tree. You see, you find here in Revelation chapter 22 that on either side of the river, the tree of life. It's in the singular and yet it's in multiple places. And so it it stands to reason that we are dealing here not with a single tree, but with a kind of tree. And more on that at another time. So what do we take from all of this? What's the point? What is the theology of trees in the Bible? Well, simply put, it's this. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They ate the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the beginning. Tree of rebellion. They attempted, secondly, to find satisfaction and freedom from their guilt By sowing fig leaves together, tree of religion, making it on your own. And then thirdly, a short, rich, socially unacceptable man climbed a sycamore tree so that he might see the one who could rescue him from sin. Maybe that's our need today, to be rescued from sin. And then fourthly, Jesus was nailed to a tree as the greatest and most devastating act in history. He hung between heaven and earth to bring you salvation, the tree of redemption. And then in the future tense, before us still, yet awaiting us, the final chapter of history, the believer is restored finally, fully and completely to a relationship with the Lord. Glorification, we call that. He or she will see God, walk with God, commune with God and partake of the tree of life and thereby live forever with God. What a theology. What a truth from right from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We have this incredible truth associated with some trees. I found it amazing. I hope you have too. The theology of trees, and I didn't even go into the tree in Psalm chapter 1 and the juniper tree under which Elijah sat, the discouragement tree. There's lots of other trees. So the encouragement is study the trees of the Bible. And uh, most importantly, come with me this morning to the one which we celebrate in just a moment, the tree of redemption. I want us to uh, read, as we do from time to time, 1 Corinthians and chapter 11 before we partake this morning to prepare us just in case we're not where we need to be just yet. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that familiar portion in verse 23, Paul describes for us what's to happen when we gather around this table. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three: For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant, the new testament in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's what we're doing, proclaiming his death until he comes, until we get to be with him and partake of the tree of life forevermore.